to the board game community show. I'm your host, Riley Starr. Join me as I get to know folks in this community. They could be designers or streamers, podcasters, YouTubers, publishers, whatever. Really anything with the nerd at the end of its title is welcome here on the board game community show. Show, show. Welcome back to the board game community show. Today I am really, really excited to have Elizabeth Hargrave with me. How you doing? I'm good, thanks. Good. I am just, we're on video, so pe- listeners can't uh, see this, but I love your office. Thank you. And my messy desk. Well, I, I usually clean it up when I'm going to be alive. Oh my gosh, that's not messy. That is like, I wish that my desk right now was nearly that clean. No, it's got, you know, some board game components and a salad bowl. <laughs> Is that lunch? That was lunch while I was on a play test on tabletop simulators. So. <laughs> That's awesome. You have like yeah. uh, birds, you've got you like bird pictures, you've got butterfly. Is that a butterfly? Like, what is that? It's just a little painting card. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And you're even wearing a bird shirt. I am. Yeah. It happens around here. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. It's just like, there's so much joy and like, yes, you designed Wingspan and Mariposas, but you very sincerely and honestly love these topics, those, I do. those things. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyways, I just wanted to gush about that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start off with the standard questions and then hopefully we we'll go off on tangents. So uh, what got you into board games? I grew up playing a certain amount of like mass market games. Um, I'm eight years older than my little brother. So it was something that I did with my parents when I was an only child. And then that like I could do as sort of a middle ground with my brother um, for like, you know, simple, simple stuff playing. We played a lot of hearts and I don't know, never Monopoly. I was never into Monopoly, but other Clue. We played a lot of Clue. I really liked deduction games, Clue and Mastermind. And in college, like my house that I lived in, we played a lot of Scrabble and Spades and stuff like that. But I started playing like modern hobby board games. I can pinpoint it to a specific weekend in 2005 that I was at like a weekend retreat with a bunch of people and someone had brought a bunch of board games. And so that weekend I played Ticket to Ride. I played Carcassonne, I think. I don't think we played Catan that weekend, but soon after I just kind of hooked into this group of people that, that were super into these games. And I was totally hooked. Yeah. Oh man, that is really cool. It's, it's like the same for so many people. You know, there's yeah. that holy trinity of, <laughs> of tickets to ride, Carcassonne, right? and Catan. Right. So as much as some people knock them, they're great. They're so such good yeah. gateway games. Yeah. I mean, and now Wingspan. Like, Wingspan is a huge gateway game, too, I think, for so many people. That's yeah, weird to think about. There. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. is weird to think about. Well, what got you into game design? It's probably almost a decade later, a little less, maybe eight years after I started playing a lot of hobby games, sort of sitting around with some friends and going, why are all these games that we play about castles and trains and like nothing that we actually care about? Because my group of friends that I game with are also all very like outdoorsy, nature loving people. So yeah, my spouse was actually the one who was like, what if there was like Race for the Galaxy, but with birds? And my brain just kind of latched on to that and wouldn't let it go. Oh, that is so cool. Your first idea is such a big hit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it took a long time to get it there, but yes. Yeah, how many years did it take? 
Um, I think I worked on it off and on, you know, as a side thing for two or three years before I pitched it. And then once it was signed with Stonemeyer, we did another year of development together before it went off to the printer. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Was it fun working with Jamie? Oh, it was great. It was like a masterclass in game design. So I would do stuff and send it to him and he'd play it a few times. And then he'd send me these long emails of like, here are all my ideas of ways that this could be better or issues I ran into or whatever. And I would go off and work on it for several more weeks and send him something else. So it was sort of back and forth like that for a while. How important was it that there was like an educational aspect of this? I wanted it to be like a true to life. I always sort of said like, I wanted it to be a, a good game first and like meaty and satisfying to gamers and I didn't want any of the information in it to be wrong or made up. And I kind of knew just from playing it that like people would pick up information sort of passively from playing it. But so many games that are explicitly educational or like trivia based and how well you do in the game is based on how well you remember the information. And I didn't want it to be that. Like I wanted how well you to do in the game to not rely on anything that you know about birds. Partly because like my friends and I know different amounts of stuff about birds, right? So like that is a very clear example of like that game just doesn't work. A trivia-based game about birds does not work in a mixed group of people who are birders and not birders. But Wingspan yeah. does, right? Like you can play with your best friend that hates birds but maybe they're into like just the mechanics of the game and it works. Yeah. And I love playing it with my wife uh, and she gets really, really into it. And it'll be fun because sometimes like a bird card will come up and she'll be like, Oh, I have a memory tied to this bird and talks about it. And, or like just looking, you know, when it's not your turn and you're just looking at your cards or looking what's out there and you're like, Oh, I didn't know that about that bird. Like, Oh, that bird's huge. Or, Oh, you know, like, just all that fun little information that's like passively educating us. Clever, clever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I get messages from people sometimes. Like someone just sent me something that was like, I saw a red winged blackbird today and like knew what it was because of playing wingspan. Oh, that is incredible. Yeah. Well, that I have a question kind of relevant to this. So how many, if we were to like take off all the names from the birds. Yeah. And just do them like flashcards. How many do you think you could do? Do you think you could do all of them and all the expansions? Definitely not all of them. But, well, definitely not all the expansions. I know the North American bird's the best by far. I could probably do most of them, but I'd stumble on a few. Um, I mean, there's birds in there that I've never seen. There's some really rare birds that are like a sparrow that, you know, sparrows are hard for me. Oh, really? <laughs> they all look very similar. Yeah, they're just like little brown birds. That's fair. Um, yeah. But uh, I haven't gotten to that level of birding where I really care about knowing what kind of sparrow that is. <laughs> Most of the time. Sometimes when I'm at, I'll actually work on it and figure it out. But my my spouse is there. He, oh, he really? He's the sparrow species. Oh, my God. Yeah. He's a, he's a much better birder than I am. Who got who into it? He was into it before me. I mean, we were always very, like, nature-y people. Like, we had binoculars because we liked looking at all kinds of things. And then he started getting specifically into birds a little bit before I did. And then we were in Costa Rica, and that's when I really got hooked because they have so many amazing birds down there. Oh, that is neat. Yeah. Do you, like, journal them? Uh, We keep lists on an app called eBird. Okay. And um, it's like a community science database. So lots of birders will keep track of what they see each day that they are out birding. And then that gets used by ornithologists to like track bird populations and migration patterns and things like that. Whoa. Uh, Yeah, it's really cool. And it's actually, I downloaded that data to do the wingspan birds um, cause I wanted to make sure for different regions that I was getting like the most common birds that people would be really familiar with. Um, cause I want like 
it's fun to put the really colorful exotic birds in there that are, you know, uncommon and exciting. But I also want like the plain Jane everyday birds that everyone knows to be in there. Yeah. Well, it it hits that like dopamine release. (laughs) I know that bird. Hey, yeah. Like (laughs) I recognize that. Yeah. Um, That's cool. Well, we don't have to talk about wingspan this entire time. That's, you know, this isn't a wingspan podcast, but <laughs> I'm just so excited because um, I, well, I have a couple of questions from a friend of a designer friend of mine um, who introduced me to wingspan. And so I was just going to ask those if that's all right with you. Sure. Okay. Well, first he wanted to start with saying, I know she hears this all the time, but my wife plays more games due to wingspan and we play that one in particular all the time, which same here. Like my, I think that helped my wife really transition into playing more board games with me. Cause it was like, well, this isn't just like some fighting game. I don't know what I play, I guess, but you know, like <laughs> this isn't some sci-fi thing. That's boring to me. Like birds, yeah. that's exciting. Yeah, I got that a lot at the beginning and and uh, especially for some reason and I always wondered like were these guys who were like hardcore Stone Meyer fans who had been trying to get their wives to play scythe with them all the time or something and like, Yeah. <laughs> the birds are just more inviting to her. I don't know. Um, <laughs> that that particular phenomenon was not one that I set out to do I but you know, I just made a game that was interesting to me and it happened to have that effect. Yeah, I really admire that. I think it's so cool. It, it got me even, you know, like, because I mainly was into games that I thought were thematically uh, interesting to me, like match up with my interests. Mm-hmm. But then I played that and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Like, I need to <laughs> I need to start being more open to more and more games. Mm. So no offense to the theme. No <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of people, it's like birds are just something that they haven't really thought about one way or the other. It's not exciting to them. Yeah. I used to go bird watching with friends, but I was like, it was more of just something fun to do with them. So his question, uh, well, he has a couple, was he'd be curious what your process is uh, on keeping things balanced and interesting with the variety of birds? Yeah, good question. Um the balance, there's definitely a big spreadsheet involved and like a formula for the score of each bird and like what different powers are worth. And some of it for like what is a power worth is sort of trial and error. And part of that is like, do you play it early in the game or late in the game? So I have to sort of make assumptions about how many times you'll get to use the bird. I don't know. A lot of it's like that part of it is just sort of play testing and do people feel like the different birds are sort of make sense together yeah so balance in that sense in the sense of like making sure there's a good variety it's just yeah i guess just kind of trial and error also and like throwing a bunch of stuff out there and seeing what sticks and um so like i just wrapped up an expansion and um It'll be the next expansion. I just sent it off to Stonemeyer, and probably at least a quarter to a half of the birds in that deck, their power changed at some point in the playtesting process. Like it's, yeah, you gotta just try it and see what works. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. You brought up spreadsheets. I was going to bring that up later because I know that you love <laughs> spreadsheets, <laughs> and. Uh, my friend has a podcast where he plays games uh, based on a spreadsheet. So it's like, he doesn't choose what game it's like, whatever comes up in the spreadsheet. Oh my God. That's brilliant. I, at the beginning of the pandemic, two friends and I decided that we wanted to play a bunch of games online that we hadn't had a chance to play. So we were like looking at board game arena and some of the other sites that have games online. We were like, we're going to go back and play, you know, a bunch of the games that won the Spiel des Jahres or whatever that, that are like, you know, there's a reason to play them kind of things. Yeah. I like really think about them from a design standpoint. The three of us are like the worst at like ever at a game night or anything, picking what we want to play. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. What do you want to do? We're just all like, I'll play anything, whatever. And so we literally just made a spreadsheet, randomized it and went through the list so that we didn't have to have that conversation. Yes. <laughs> it's so, so smart. It's brilliant. <laughs> oh, that's great. 
Uh, well, that's cool. And yeah, you love your spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What What do you think is the benefit of using spreadsheets in design? Oh, I mean, you couldn't do something like Wingspan without a way to keep track of all that information. It's yeah. it's a way to hold on the information. And then, but even like, okay, so Tazumasi, 18 cards, right? You don't really need a spreadsheet for it. But I am so efficient at that at this point with making my cards in Nandeck that mm-hmm. even for 18 cards because when I change cards in the spreadsheet I can run it through Nandeck and it just makes all the new cards for me and I don't have to change every one of them by hand even at the 18 card level it's worth going through the process of setting up the spreadsheet like I started Tussie Mussy in a just a, like a table in Microsoft Word or something, you know, where each card is a cell in the table. And very quickly, I was like, no, this is inefficient. Like, if I have to, t- <laughs> if I have to hand make every card, it's inefficient. Yeah, that's smart. Your time is yeah. valuable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This one, he asked this, and then I have a follow-up with it. So do people get critical about how powerful ravens are in the game? And I want to tack onto that. Like, do you ever get tired of people just like, uh, kind of picking apart certain things of the game. <laughs> People are definitely critical about the Ravens. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, I'll say the Ravens were partly intentionally strong and, and maybe partly my formula was off. Who knows? I, you know, like, whatever. Do I get sick of it? Is that the other half of the question? I don't know. I mean, whatever. There's always going to be something. Oh, okay. No That's game fair. is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's perfect. It's great. It's great. <laughs> uh, and then this one's a little bit of a longer one, but I think it's really interesting because it inspired me to try playing it in a different way that I've never played. So uh, my wife and I often play collaboratively while also trying to get a high score, meaning we often look for opportunities to boost each other's food production and or card draw so we can both have high scores while also trying to beat the other one. It's been a fun and totally different way to play competitively, and we both benefit from it and come away feeling better about the experience. I'm curious if that's something that Elizabeth intended in her design as she worked on the game. I mean, not exactly that, but it was definitely intentional that there are cards in there that that have you boost other players along with getting something for yourself. I don't think people would play them if you were only helping the other person. But for some people, it's uncomfortable, even that feeling that you're helping the other player as much as you're helping yourself. Um, But I think that's a really interesting dynamic. And, you know, sometimes you might put out one of those birds and sometimes you'll activate it and sometimes you won't because you'll, you know, depending on whether you think gaining that resource at that time is more beneficial to you for some reason. But uh, yeah, I just think that's a really interesting dynamic. And I've played around with it some in the different expansions too, in terms of different ways of, of spreading that love around. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, I love how there's the two sides. I've never played the more competitive side of the uh, round. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've only played the friendly yeah. side. Uh, so I'd be curious to try the more competitive one, but I generally like, I'm using it to like introduce my family or like right. my in-laws to the, to gaming it. And so I, I don't want to go too extreme <laughs> <laughs> or too competitive, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's been a great game to introduce so many people to. That's great. So thank you for creating it. Uh, do you have a favorite bird? This just popped into my head. Have you answered this before? Uh, just a few times, yeah. Okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> a common question. Uh, yeah, I always say the roseate spoonbill, which is a big wading bird. It's like the size of a great blue heron, if you know that bird. And um, they're pink, and they have a really weird-looking bill, and I love them. That's awesome. Is it just because <laughs> of the way they look, or is there some sort of, like, uh action that they do like feet that they do it's mostly the way they look and i think the fact that that within the united states they're really just like in the like florida and maybe over to the gulf coast maybe a little bit up the coast from florida too so it's something that i grew up in north florida so they're they're a bird that i see when i go home oh okay so there's a little sentimentality to it yeah yeah that's very sweet on favorite topics, this is the hardest question in the whole podcast. 
what's your favorite board game or board games if you can't choose one? Yeah, I can never choose. (laughs) I hate that question. (laughs) (laughs) It's the worst one. um, I got my spouse and one of my best friends really into terraforming Mars during the pandemic. And so we've been playing a lot of that lately. I don't know if I'd say it's my favorite game, but it's one I've been playing a lot lately. That's interesting because I think normal. Well, yeah, normally I think you've talked about how you don't like sci-fi type things, or but yeah. So what is it? Why is this the exception? <laughs> I think for sci-fi, terraforming Mars feels relatively realistic. Okay. Um, it's not like like I also actually one of my other favorite games is Race for the Galaxy, which is like totally. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, that thing does nothing for me but the terraforming mars like they de- there's a lot of thought behind the pieces of it of like what would you actually need to do to make mars habitable and um so i like that aspect of it theme wise yeah that's that just a great fun. engine builder yeah <laughs> is that what's your favorite mechanic is engine building your favorite I mean, engine building is so broad in general. I don't know if I would even say. I, I, yeah, I like games where you build something up and people can't really tear you down too much. Okay. We've actually taken some cards out of the Terraforming Mars deck that are like the big attack cards because no one in our playgroup likes them. They just make us sad. Oh, <laughs> but that's smart. You know, you've got to make the game fit for your group. That's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's almost, yeah, that's kind of homebrewing. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. It's like no one likes this card. We're going to make it just permanently go away. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just broke out um, Arc Nova. They sent me a copy of it. Have you heard of this? Yeah. It just came out last year at Essen, I think. And I'm on a card in the game, which is really fun. What? Are you? <laughs> I am. <laughs> What's the card? Can you tell me? It's the ornithologist. Oh, well, of course. Yeah, that does make sense. That is so yeah. cool. Yeah, you can't really tell it's me because I'm looking through a pair of binoculars, so my face is kind of blocked, but it's me. It's a picture of me. Did you send in a picture of you holding binoculars up to your face? Well, no, it was a... Um... It was a picture that I had sent to the guy who's the graphic designer for Feuerland for something else. Like for a magazine story that was coming out in Germany. It's just like a vacation picture of me birding. <laughs> and, and that was like two years ago, you know, or something. And then a few, whenever he was putting together the cards for Arkadova, he was like, I had this idea. Can I use this picture for this card? I was like, sure. <laughs> and then I completely forgot that it was happening. And then someone posted it on Twitter that when the when the German version came out, they posted this picture of this car. And I was like, oh, yeah, I did give them permission to do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey. <laughs> yeah. So have you gone to play Arc Nova much? Yeah, so I just played a couple solo games just trying to kind of wrap my head around it before I try to teach it to anyone else. It's definitely heavier than the comfort level of the group of people that I play with. The most okay. regularly, but I think the theme will get them into it. Like we were talking about, like this group of friends that I play games with are also very outdoorsy people. So I think the the animals will bring them along, and the fact that they they're now like comfortable at sort of terraforming Mars level, Arknovas maybe in another level up. I don't know, not too far, too not too much more than than terraforming Mars. Yeah, I like this this gradual like uh... yeah escalation of converting your friends into board games (laughs) i mean they're solidly into board games they just don't love learning complicated games yeah right like i'm never gonna and so if it's something where the theme is doesn't like i'm never gonna try and get them to play maracaibo right like i'm never gonna there's certain games that i like they don't hold enough interest for them thematically for me to even bother but Hmm. um but this one i think i might be able to get them to do it Nice. <laughs> I'm sure it'll go great. <laughs> or, you know, we'll quit and play something else. And, that's <laughs> and that can just be a, is it fun solo? It is nice solo. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I imagine your, your spouse would play it with you, right? No, he's a much lighter gamer than I am. So oh, really? he's definitely in that group of like, yeah, I'm going to have to lift them up to get them 
to do it, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is a normal question I ask is, uh, do like, how much does your spouse game with you? We play a lot with friends. Um, and sometimes just the two of us, but it's not like a core thing that we like every night that we don't have something else going on. We don't break out a board game necessarily. And he will play test as long as I don't ask him too frequently, because I think his main barrier to entry is um, learning rules. Like, he'll play a game that he knows over and over and over, which is why we've been playing a lot of Terraforming Mars. Like, once they all learn Terraforming Mars, we were golden. They're happy to play something that heavy. But the it's the learning that's the barrier. Right. And um, so when I'm playtesting a lot and the rules are changing every time we play, that's not really a recipe for success. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I have a bunch of people now who are perfectly happy to play test my games. It's one of the side benefits of having a hit board game. It turns out that like you don't have to work as hard at getting play testers anymore. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. That's awesome. Don't yeah. you're in the DC area, aren't you? I am. Isn't yeah. there a pretty good uh, like a play test group there? There's a great design community. There's a group called um, Break My Game. That lots of people do um, that have been meeting monthly at a local board game cafe and now does like way, way more online with playtesting than we ever did in person. Hmm. And then like I have a little group of folks that I meet with on a uh, weekday that are all like full-time designers, me and Dominic Krapischutz and Matthew O'Malley. Um, so that's kind of a fun group. And then um, now, yeah, like I just have a list of people that are happy to come play test my game. So I just set up four play test nights in March, each with two games, and they like filled up right away. Wow. It's really wild. I can't get used to it. It's such a luxury. Finding play testers is one of the hardest things about designing a game when you're just starting out. And um, it's one of the most awesome things that players can do to help designers is to like, volunteer to play test their games. Yeah. Well, and I think when you can get volunteer, so I do a little design too. Uh, yeah. Nothing, nothing great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we've got a design group here in Utah, and it's really, really nice. But you have other designers play testing your games, and so the feedback is very different than yes players. Like yes. And uh, not that it's less valuable, it's just different. Yeah. No, I mean, I think partly it depends on what stage a game is in. So I really value other designers. Like, the earlier it is in the process, the more helpful that is that they will help you, like, muddle through, like, where your core is and what's working and what isn't and how to fix things. And then, I guess, at a certain point, you hit a time where you just need to play the crap out of a game and you're only making slight tweaks around the edges but you need bodies and chairs to play the game <laughs> as many times as you can and um yeah so that's that's when like having just like random people come or like take into a playtesting convention or something can be super super helpful yeah oh, absolutely that kind of brings me to another thing I wanted to talk about with women in gaming. So my wife will come, she's not a designer, but she'll come to the meetings with me and play test games and awesome. just for fun. And uh, that helps so much with the ratio of like people to play the games versus people that have a game that they need you to play. <laughs> yeah. Well, the way they work it is we have like priority points. So if you ah. come and you don't play test your game, you get priority points. Uh-huh. And then you come and you bring it and then you spend your priority points to to play it. So nice. it's sort of a good way to to keep it like balanced. Yeah. To make yeah. it so that somebody just doesn't come and show up, play their game and then never show up again. Right. But anyways. Uh, <laughs> but the thing she always brings up is like, oh, every time because we've got them throughout four different stores, I think three or four different stores. Ooh. And every time we go to one of these meetings, uh, she's like the only girl in the whole game store. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, she gets stares and sometimes weird, like people come up and just start talking to her, but it's not like it's uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> so do you still experience that? Like 
even as a bigger name in the industry? And It's hard to say now because most places that I go, someone knows who I am and that just like totally changes the dynamic. Yeah. It's something that I noticed changing even in the time from when I started Wings Bando when it came out that there were more women coming to events as players and as designers at both levels. And the designer group is like lagging behind the gamers, right? Cause de- designers are like people who've been gaming for a while usually. And so <laughs> there's like a lag there as we get more women to play games, more women will become designers eventually. Um, yeah. My favorite local game store in DC is a woman-owned business who's, that's very intentional about the community that they cultivate and the staff that they hire. So, like that that feeling of like people looking at you funny when you walk in the door, like you don't get a lot here in DC. But definitely do have times when you're in a very noticeable minority, and it's. It, at first it felt very awkward as I got to know more and more people in the community. It, it sort of pushed through it. And then it was less awkward because they were just people that I knew and like, it's not weird, but yeah, it feels weird. And I, and I do worry that like if someone came into an environment like that and didn't have an anchor that was keeping them coming them back, like your wife has you sort of, as a comfortable companion in that space and then someone that's really encouraging her to come back. Like, but for people who don't have that, like how many of them just don't come another time. So that has always made me feel that much more dedicated to sticking around and like trying to make people feel comfortable. That's great. Yeah. Cause I would love to see more women in these game stores. I'd love just to see more diversity in my game store, honestly, yeah. of every kind. Uh, and I think that that I really admire you because like even on your website, you have kind of two spaces dedicated to promoting black voices in the industry and promoting women and uh, and tra- the trans community, right? Yeah. Non-binary yeah. designer. Yeah. So I, I really thank you for doing that kind of thing. Sure. And, yeah, that list started partly because I was getting so many people reaching out and being like, we really want to have you on because you're the like the only woman that's designing board games. And I'm like, I am not the only one <laughs> designing board games. I'm the only one that you know about. And so I like, started this long list to like point podcasts to and, and things like that. I'm like, look at all these people you could be talking to and lifting up and helping get the word out. Um yeah. So. Yeah. Well, bravo. <laughs> I I like going through your list periodically and being like, because there's a lot of names on there. And like for yeah. black voices, I was like, the person who created phase 10 is a black man. Like, that is so cool. Like I grew up <laughs> playing that game and like, I love that game. So it's like, a, it was a yeah. staple to my childhood right. playing it with my grandparents. And like, just, it was a, it was surprising to see so many, many of these older games like being designed by women or people of color or you know like right like Candyland and monopoly are both designed by women yeah <laughs> like yeah. those are staples and right. just so cool yeah so thanks for your dedication for doing that you know and like sticking sticking to it i <laughs> yeah and it definitely takes some time to keep that list up it's definitely out of date at this point there are a bunch of games that came out just in the last year that i haven't gotten to yet but uh yeah, and you have literally nothing else going on right now, so it's, you know. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I need to figure out a way to make it more crowdsourced. Like, I've talked to the folks at Board Game Geek about, like, I think they're very reluctant to put a flag for gender on people's profiles because Board Game Geek is not known as a particularly friendly environment for women. So, I yeah, I don't know what the what the answer to that is. Oh, that's disheartening it is yeah they've gotten very aggressive about moderation because of it um and so i think it may change over time but yeah it it. (laughs) i've definitely a few times had to like i now know one of the moderators and will like ping him directly when i start to see stuff and now they've made it so that you can report 
posts. Um, and if you report something, they'll go, they'll jump right on it. Like they've gotten very serious about trying to curate the space and make it more welcoming. Oh, good. That's yeah. good. But they don't. So that is interesting, though, that they wouldn't like have it be like male, female, non-binary or like. They just don't have it as a field in your profile on BoardGameGeek. There isn't a way to sort by that. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to like create a geek list. Yeah. And then it becomes like this chore to, of upkeep of adding games to it. Right. Yeah. So I just did one because I thought this would be more manageable. I did like games in the top 500 on board game geek plus like games that have won major awards. And that's like a manageable chunk. <laughs> That's like, yeah, it's not too much to moderate. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it's an awesome list of games that you should, everyone should check out and like make sure that you know who some of the top women designers are. Yeah. Well, I saw you were, you didn't post this, but you've been spreading it around the Bechtel test for. For board games. And I like was looking through my shelf and I'm like, oh no, you gotta be kidding me. Like I, you know, you can see behind me, I've got like wingspan and mariposas next to each other. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking to myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh cool. Like I guess I sort of passed it. You know, like I do have right. two of your games, so <laughs> well, yeah. So for people who haven't seen this, the, the oh, Bechdel right. test originally was um, from a cartoon called Dykes to Watch Out For in the 80s. And these two women are thinking about going to a movie, but one of them says, I have a rule about what movies I'll go see. There have to be at least two women in the movie. They have to actually talk to each other and they have to talk about something other than a man. Um, And at the time in the 80s, that was actually like, really hard to find movies that met that test and there's a website now that will like you can look up out of the movies that came out in the last year like which ones meet the test they actually get people to rate them so anyway so this guy's version of the Bechdel test for your board game shelf was just like do you have two games with at least one of their designers a woman and are they that are sitting next to each other on their shelf so that's sort of the the board game version of are they talking to each other about something? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's hard. It's really hard given the choices of games that are out there. And so in spreading it, I wasn't like trying to make people feel judged or guilty, but I think it's a really interesting exercise to look at the names on your boxes and realize how skewed the board game market is right now. And for me, I realized also like the other reason that I was sharing it is that when people did share their shelfies of two games by women next to each other on the shelf, like it makes me just really happy to see it because it is so rare. And it's, you know, back to what we were talking about, about being one of the few women in the room often. It just, I, I feel like seeing the shelfies is like a proxy for that in-person experience. <laughs> like, oh, there are other women here. Um, yeah. Oh, as you were saying that, I realized like, oh, it's also promoting games. Like, uh, you know, you look through all those images and be like, oh, I didn't know that was designed by a woman. Or yeah. being like, oh, hey, there's a game I can check out by a woman yes. designer. You know, like, yes. uh, so that was really cool. Uh, and I think it also they he might have extended or somebody extended it to like people of color too. And I'm like, oh boy, that's another problem yeah, on my shelf. That's I think even harder. Like as yeah. as as much as we're making progress on getting more women designers, and I think we are like several years behind in terms of getting to parity on um, people of color designing board games and playing games. Right? Like if you go to your average board game store. Um, again, it's something that I think we're a little bit ahead of the curve on in DC, although DC is like a majority major minority city. And while at any given night at Labyrinth in DC, there are usually people of color there. It's not majority minority at any given game night. So we're like way behind the curve of what the population is. Interesting. Yeah. I'm, it's just something that we've got to work on and, yeah, you know, first thing is recognizing the problem and then addressing it, figuring out ways yeah. to 
to fix it. Well, and my personal theory, and this is like only a theory, but one of the ways that I think about it is like, you know, you're talking earlier about some women have said, or often spouses say, you got my wife to play board games finally with Wingspan. And like, I don't know what that phenomenon is and whether it has anything to do with the fact that I designed it and I'm a woman, but there's a chance that there's something that, that there's some cause and effect there. I don't know, but it just seems like, you know, my original impetus for becoming a, a designer in the first place was like, there I found something lacking in the market of board games that I was being offered. And so I just think like the more people that you bring in who are like, these games are just not speaking to me. Like I need to design something different. There are going to be a lot of other people like them that they bring in with that game. Right. And um, certainly not only are games like around a lot of themes that appeal to men, I would argue on, you know, whatever that's like socialized and or innate, who knows, but Certainly, like, the depictions of human beings in games are skewed towards being male and very white. Um, and that's something that's gotten better in the last few years, and more publishers are starting to, like, be conscious of that. But uh, we've got a lot of catching up to do, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for <laughs> sure. And I think, you know, my wife, uh, after playing Wingspan, and we were at the at a game store, and I was like, oh, Mariposas is by Elizabeth. You know, we, same person who did Wingspan. And she was like, yeah. buy it right now. Like, oh, <laughs> so, like without really, she saw there was right. butterflies and she's like, I love butterflies. Like, and uh, you know, I love Wingspan. So yes, I'm yeah. in. So I do definitely think there's that, like uh, that connection, you know, like she's mm-hmm. found a designer that she likes and, and she really enjoys Mariposas though. She's like, it's way harder than, <laughs> than Wingspan, which I'm Why sure. Why does she here. think it's harder? Yeah. That's interesting. I think the rules are simpler. Yeah, they are. Maybe it's harder to wrap your head around how to do well at it. That's what it is. Yeah. Because, you know, like, we've played it a handful of times, and I think one time she got one or two butterflies back down south. And so it was like, oh, no, you know, like, she has a hard time getting out and then coming back in. But it's it's such a fascinating and educational thing again that like I didn't know there was like multiple generations to this migration. Yeah. And wow, just mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of becoming my genre, I think. Like mind blowing things in the world that I would like you to know about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I expect a like a, a PBS show with you as the host and <laughs> Or a Netflix series. Right. <laughs> Mind-blowing things with Elizabeth Hargrave. Right. <laughs> well, let's go outside of board games for a minute. What do you like to do? I, I know a couple of things, but yeah, hobbies and whatnot. Yeah. Well, I'm a birder. Um, I have a big garden, vegetable garden. Um, and I am a mushroomer. I'm actually president of my local mushroom club. Oh, I didn't know you were the president. I, yeah, this is a new development. Oh, that's cool. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Someone had to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So are you, uh, what is a, what is a, I don't want to say shroomer, uh, what's a mushroomer yeah, do? Mushroom. <laughs> um, I mean, I think a lot of people come from different angles. There are people that are really interested in just cooking mushrooms, and so they go out and forage you know, and learn to identify wild mushrooms for the food aspect. There's definitely people whose first entree into the world of mushrooms is like curiosity about psychedelic mushrooms. There's people who are just like naturalists and curious about what's out there in the world. Um, And they keep seeing mushrooms out in the woods and they want to know what they are. And so they start learning about my, you know, there's a lot of different angles to come at. I'm some of all of the above probably, yeah, and we have like 900 members in our club, so we've got wow. tons of um, walks that we try to lead where like some of our members of the club are like super skilled at identifying mushrooms, so you go out and like find out what's in the woods and, and they'll tell you what it is. And um, we have cultivation workshops, we do a monthly speaker, yeah, lots of good stuff. 
Very cool. Do you grow any mushrooms? Um, I have grown mushrooms. I don't have anything going right now. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. That is except so well at, at in our yard we have intentionally gotten um, wine caps to grow. They kind of they have a season to them, so they'll probably come up in our mulch again next year because we feed them mulch and they keep going. Oh, cool! <laughs> yeah. That's really neat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you had any luck uh, designing a mushroom game? I am currently working on a mushroom game. Ooh, very exciting! Yeah, yeah. Can you tease anything about it other than that? Uh, it is so the like mind blowing thing that I want everyone to know about mushrooms is that um, there are many mushrooms that actually attach their roots to tree roots and they will trade nutrients. So we all learned in school mostly that mushrooms are just decomposers. And then, so they grow on wood, right, and break it down. And that's how they get their carbon. There is a group of mushrooms that are not decomposers. They get their carbon because they are really good at getting phosphorus and nitrogen out of the soil. And they give it to trees and the trees give them some carbon for it. Contribute to the rhizosphere, right? And that's like obviously a board game. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Trading resources. That's... What more do you need? <laughs> It, it makes itself. <laughs> oh, that's really exciting. I, uh, I help get rid of mushrooms for my job sometimes. So What? What's yeah. your job? Well, my dad made a project, a product uh, that uses microbes to help, uh, help get the soil healthy. Okay. So, like we try to bring the soil back to health. Oh, cool. And reduce the use of fertilizers and chemicals. Um, but as a natural byproduct the bacteria break things down faster, which gets rid of food sources for some mushrooms. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. When people use it on their lawn. So you're mostly adding bacteria and not fungi. We do have a little like mycorrhiza. Yeah. uh, But mainly mycorrhiza is the only one because it helps with, it's that way you were talking about, like they attach to the roots and then go out and they help break down things. And with mycorrhiza, something really crazy is that they can sometimes like, latch themselves around tiny insects and like burrow a hole into their heads and and actually like extract carbon from them and it's like what like this this little fungus can can kill a bug and like use it as nutrients so cool yes it can (laughs) (laughs) so yeah that's that's what I do a little bit of. Awesome. <laughs> a little tie-in. If you want some, I'll hook you up with some. <laughs> For your, I would use it on your vegetable garden, obviously, not your... <laughs> Let's see. Is there anything else? Like, uh, what, don't, what about outside of nature? Like, do you do indoor things or... What do I do indoors? I don't know. I play board games. I design board games. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a TV <laughs> person? Uh... I usually have something that I'm watching. I'm not a huge TV person right now. Um, I'm watching Alone. There's a new season of Alone out. Do you know Alone? I don't. Quizzical. I know. I'm trying to think of it. (laughs) It's a reality TV show, but unlike most reality shows, there's like no interpersonal drama because the entire point is that they take 10 people and they drop them off each individually in the wilderness with like a bunch of camera equipment and a knife and a fire starting rod. And maybe a few, like they get like 10 items and uh, they have to survive as long as they can while procuring all of their own food and filming themselves all day, every day. Wow. Um, And then you can like tap out and the last person to tap out gets like half a million dollars or something. Cool. But they take them to these beautiful places. This current setting is somewhere in British Columbia with like the highest concentration of grizzly bears. And so there's like a lot of bear encounters. There's a lot of like wildlife. In one episode, a guy kills a musk ox with a knife. <laughs> what in the world? It's wild. It's that, wild. Wow! Yeah, so, so there's at least one season on Netflix, I think, and then it's a it's like a History Channel show, so you can watch it on the History Channel website. That sounds like but a History Show channel, yeah. It's <laughs> it's very compelling, and uh, it's like both visually beautiful because of where the people are and the animals and stuff, and also like 
amazing bushcraft that these people know for to survive in this world and like like it's not interpersonal drama but there's definitely a lot of psychological drama of like what is this experience of just being in the wilderness completely cut off from everybody that you know any like any modern civilization at all um which i think like it's it's gotten popular really since the pandemic even though it existed before that and and i think there's a certain resonance there right that we've all been sort of cut off from each other yeah it it takes that relatability to a whole nother level being like well i'm not in the forest but i (laughs) (laughs) at least i'm don't have to trap a bunch of rabbits for my dinner tonight (laughs) yeah would you do that would you would you take up the challenge of alone I don't have the skills and I'm not good at being hungry. Like I can't go longer than three or four hours without eating. <laughs> I, just, it's, I get hangry really fast. That's totally <laughs> fair. <laughs> so I would not be a good contestant. I know a couple people who would probably actually like do a respectable showing, but they're still like, they fall far short of some of the people on this show. It's pretty amazing. Oh, wow. I may have to check that out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that can... Ra- is there anything else outside of... After my 10-minute commercial for this history t- yeah. show. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is... Uh, what do you call it? Now <laughs> sponsored. That's it's what it is. Sponsored by... Yeah. <laughs> by the History um, Channel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but is there anything else outside of all of these other things? Maybe something people may not know about you. I'm really not that secretive. <laughs> no, you seem pretty transparent. I do. I do the New York Times crossword puzzle every day. Oh, cool! There, that's for that's how long? Hobby. How long? Oh, I only recently really anteed up and paid to have a subscription to do the full thing. But my mom, for years, has saved the Sunday New York Times crossword puzzle for me. Out of she gets the Sunday New York Times in Florida somehow and she like saves the physical Sunday crossword for me every week oh and so I like every time I see her I get a stack of crossword puzzles from her it's very sweet that is really sweet. I wasn't doing them every day but um I started doing crosswords when I was I had a summer job at a lab where I was washing dishes and um it was a lab where they frequently had to like stick things in the centrifuge for 10 minutes and they wouldn't have something to do during those 10 minutes. So they always had a crossword puzzle sitting out on the, on the bench for everyone to jointly work on. So they kind of got me started on it and it's been a lifelong hobby ever since then. That's really cool. Neat. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that. So there you go. (laughs) Uh, Well, we're coming up to the end here. But we got to play Ridiculous Theme first, which this is such an honor for me because you are the inspiration for Ridiculous Theme. What? Yeah. <laughs> because. What does that say about what you think of my game? <laughs> <laughs> well, and it isn't necessarily you, but when somebody told me about Wingspan, they were like, oh, yeah, it's a game about like bird watching. That's the theme. And I was like, bird watching? What? Like, that is so weird. And my friend, I was with a friend who was playing it, and his brother was the one telling us about it. Oh, it was actually Dusty. Uh, that's why I had him send in those questions. Uh, and and I was like, that. what other kind of, like, weird, ridiculous themes you can, come, can you come up with? Because ridiculous doesn't have to mean, like, bad by any means. It's just something that you wouldn't normally think of. Uh, like, yeah. last week, somebody said colonoscopy. Ew. The game. No. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, and that's the old. That's it. I don't have any mechanics. It's just like that's the idea. <laughs> One of the earlier ones was like potty training for bummies, where like it's a deck builder where you have to potty train your kid. <laughs> oh my gosh! And you don't want to draw the oopsie poopsies. You got to train those out of them. You know, like. <laughs> I'm pulling up, so I I keep a list on my phone. Whoa. Of- potential thing but these are like i don't know they're okay here's a ridiculous theme i was in morocco a few years ago this is another just like this is a ridiculous thing that exists in the world but it's more lighthearted and not like the mycorrhizal fungi that are making the world run but uh 
So in Morocco, if you're just driving around, they have a lot of argan trees that grow there. You've probably seen like hair and skincare products that have argan oil in them. Um, it's like the latest fad and beauty product. I don't know. Maybe there's a later one now. But um, anyway, they grow argan there, which is like a, I don't even like a nut or berry or some something that grows on trees. And the way it is harvested is that goats climb up in the trees, eat the argan fruit or nut, poop it out, and then the pooped out seed, I guess they have like digested the husk off of it or whatever. The pooped out seed is what then gets processed into the oil that gets made into beauty products. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so I, when I was in Morocco, I was like, there could totally be a game that involves goats climbing trees, <laughs> but that also has this like very typical Euro game market for argan products. <laughs> oh man. That's almost like worker placement, research right. gathering. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you can get it by your goats. Yeah. Oh my goodness. But then there has to be an element of the game where somehow you have them literally climbing in trees. Yeah. Because that's like the thing, right? Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> that is a that's a great ridiculous theme. I love it. <laughs> I had one. I usually share one, so I guess I got it. Yeah. Uh, this is a this is excellent to get your brain design your game design brain. I know, Floating, right? right? Yeah. It's a fun exercise. So even, right. you know, listeners, just do it. Just You don't even necessarily have to come up with mechanics, but sometimes life just lends itself to the mechanics. Uh, yes. So like we had, I was thinking, talking to somebody else uh, today, and we started talking about insects uh, and like making it so that there's like an, a, some bigger threat like squirrels or cats or something have been invading it. And so those are like titans in, the, in nature to these ants and grasshoppers. And so they have to like form an alliance to, to try and survive. And, you know, like the ants are good at building and there's bees and they're good at like making honey and they could lure animals away from the colony and grasshoppers could be scouts because they can jump, jump around and see, or, you know, like just different silly things like that. Uh, and that's all I have. <laughs> that's great. Just an excuse to have lots of fun insects working together. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and also, I learned that roly-polies, pill bugs, and... Oh, I forget there's another name for it. There's three different like names for the same type of... They're the of same thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's it. There's so many things like that, right? So Yeah. Which is why we use scientific names for things. But now, like, with all this DNA work that people are doing, they keep changing the scientific names. And so that is less true. Right? Isn't that yeah, interesting? Like the common name is actually sometimes much more stable and understandable than the, yeah. than the Latin name. Because we like start to figure out what it actually is at its like true core. And then it's like, oh, that's not what we thought it was. Yeah. Oh, this is actually related to this instead. And yeah. then you have the people grew up calling it some other thing that still call it that thing. And they're like, wait, are we talking about the same thing? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Are there some projects you want to plug or anything you want to plug at the end of this here? I don't have anything coming out super soon, but by the end of the year, the next Wingspan expansion will be out. Woo! And maybe another game that I have that is about an experiment that happened in Russia where they bred foxes into domesticated dogs. What? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I love your themes. <laughs> that sounds really cool. Yeah, it's a it's a great story and again like it has an obvious like so you need to be rolling dice to pass down the genetics of the dogs from of the foxes from one generation to another and so yeah, I think that's getting close and the publisher was interested in getting it out this year, but I'm not sure if we're actually going to make it at this point because there's no art or anything yet. Oh, yeah. And that's, you know, making games takes a lot of time after you are done with the actual like mechanics of the game to actually make it. So yeah. we'll see. We'll see. Well, very <laughs> exciting. Is there... 
Can you tease at all what the wingspan is? Have they announced what the next uh, continent is or anything like that? No, I don't think they're going to okay. say until they're ready to sell it. Perfect. I won't they ask. They announced it earlier, early with the Oceania one, because they did a thing where it was like sign up for the website and I mean for the email list and we'll donate money to the wildfire relief in Australia. Oh, cool. For each person that signed up. So that was like an early thing just to tie it in with the you know and pass along some money to the australia wildfires um but usually stonemaier doesn't announce things until they're pretty much ready to go out the door especially with how crazy shipping has been lately um and un- like the unpredictability of getting stuff here from china just makes it really hard to like you don't want to make an announcement and then, oh, oops, it actually took two more months than we thought it would get here. So, like, yeah. They actually have a policy that they want it in their warehouse before they announce it. Oh, that makes sense. That's really cool. It's I, really unusual, but I think it, it works for them. So I prefer that. Like, I remember back in the day, movies used to not get announced so far in advance. Yeah, They'd announce them, yeah. like, the year they were coming out, you know? like Right. But... I think the the age of internet, you know, like, uh, yeah, you want to hype things up. Anyways, uh, great. Well, we plug your website and your social media, I guess. Yeah, it's all Eliz Hargrave. Um, so at Eliz Hargrave for Twitter and ElizHargrave.com. So E-L-I-Z Hargrave. I didn't feel like spelling out my whole long name. <laughs> it's so <laughs> long. <laughs> fair Um, enough yeah well perfect thanks so much for coming on thanks for having me thank you so much for listening stick around until the very end to hear a board game fond memory from elizabeth if this is your first time listening thank you so much for coming and checking it out i hope you'll stick around and check out a few more episodes i've got a couple of recommendations if you're looking for more female designers there is episode 10 with jess metheringham from Descent Games. She has a Kickstarter coming soon, which is called the Library Labyrinth. And it is, you're going through a library. It's like a library adventure, but all of your main characters are females or non-binary characters, which I think is really, really cool. There's episode 23 with Bez, which is Stuff by Bez. She designs awesome games and is an awesome part of the community. There's episode 28 with Pearl Ho, Cake of Doom. Uh, I got to play that. I quite enjoyed it. Episode 29, we play a game by Zoe Allred called Persuasion, and that was a really, really fun episode to do. I inserted clips of, of the gameplay as we talked about it. And episode 33 is the interview with Zoe. There's other episodes that I think are really great, like episode 15 with PG Law. She does. She was a two-time contestant on the TV show Survivor, and she also does a podcast called Reality Escape Pod. I really, really enjoy that. And during our conversation, we ended up talking about her experiences going into a board game store and being a female in the board game store and people staring at her and asking her weird questions. And so I thought that was a really good good episode. Episode 30, I had Starla and Mick from Our Family Plays Games, and that was really cool. And And we talked about getting more inclusion in the episode. And I made a comment during it that, that wasn't quite right, and Starla corrected me on it. And people asked me, well, why didn't you edit that out so you didn't sound dumb? And I was like, well, I would rather sound dumb so that other people can learn from it, because I learned from it, and it was a very valuable experience. So I'm very proud of that episode. That's a great one to check out. And then episode 37 is with Brian Chandler and Dustin Dowdle. And we talk about colorblind accessibility in games. So there's a list of great episodes that really I'm just so proud of every single episode I have. So go check any of them out. You can just go through and if you see a name you recognize, check it out. I've got a couple of projects that I have going on right now, which is weird. I'm I'm involved in so much recently. So last night from when this airs, I will have done my first Game Night Insight, which is going to be a YouTube show that we are going to try and do monthly. And it is with Angela, Board Game Grand, whom I love dearly, and Josh, the Board Game Captain, who I've gotten to know recently. And he's really cool. And so we are going to be talking 
about why we game. And I really look forward to it. By the time this airs, I will have already had this conversation. So I hope it went well. And you can go and watch it and tell us what you want our next topic to be on. On Monday, from when this airs, I will be a guest on Board Game Hot Takes, which is one of my favorite board game podcasts, really just one of my favorite podcasts. And it was so cool to be able to get to play Libertalia with them and talk about it. It was weird for me because I'm not used to doing like a review style thing, but they had it structured so well that hopefully I didn't sound like a complete idiot. But if I did, I still had fun doing it. So go listen to that. Go listen to their other uh, episodes as well. Elizabeth and I were talking about spreadsheets and the love of spreadsheets. And I wanted to point out that my other favorite podcast, Organized Fun with an S, Phil is the host of that. And so go check out that podcast because it is great. And that's where I got the inspiration to do the one persuasion episode, Community Plays Persuasion. They insert clips of the gameplay in as they talk about it. And I think it's a really clever and awesome format. So definitely check that one out. This past week, I just launched a new podcast. It's called Friend and Foe Adventure Co. And it is an actual play podcast that's using the tabletop RPG version of Bunkers and Badasses, which is the RPG that's in the video game Borderlands. Wow, it's just so many layers to that. And it is really, really funny. It's really fun to play with my friends, my wife. She's on there, and I'm really proud of that. So you can go check that out wherever you listen to podcasts. Hopefully by now it's on nearly everything. And it may not be your cup of tea, and that's okay. You don't have to listen to it. That's fine. It's a totally different type of thing. But we mainly focus on the on just having fun. If you enjoy the podcast, rate it, leave a review. Feedback is always welcome. You can at me on Twitter, at RyleNerd. You can DM me and let me know some feedback. Oh, I think this would be better if you did it this way. Or, oh, I don't like this part. You know, I'm really open to suggestions. I, I have a lot of fun doing this. And I always want to improve on everything I do. Diversity is something that's really important in our community, and we need more of it. So if there is any way that I can help, if there are some designers, artists, content creators that are people of color, female, uh, non-binary, whatever it is, feel free to DM me or email me and and let me know if you want to come on the show. I would love to have you promote what you're doing and, and be able to help however I can. You can find me on Twitter at RyleDNerd. You can email me at theboardgamecommunityshow at gmail.com. And that is it. Until next week, keep nerding out. So I grew up in Florida, but I now live in the mid-Atlantic and have friends who like to do wintry things. And... My fond memory of playing board games is really the first time that I was introduced to to modern board games was like a winter retreat where everyone was going skiing, but I do not ski. I do not like being outside in the snow. And so there was nothing cozier to me than like sitting down and figuring out all these board games that were totally new to me by the fire after everyone came back from being cold. It was awesome. Very fun memory for sure.